0: Bible, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians. In the New Testament, we're commanded to read the Bible when we meet together in a time of worship like this. So I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. If you pick up a Bible that looks like this on a chair around you, this is on page 953. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 5 through 17. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, Will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are the one who created us for yourself. And it seems that because of that, our hearts are restless until they come back to you and find in you everything that we long for. And yet it seems in this world it is so easy for us to wander and and find in other things some sense of satisfaction, however fleeting some contentment or happiness that seems to make you and eternal things of such small significance. And so we pray that this morning in some small way, as we look into your word, you would open our minds to understand it and you would so soften our hearts that we would be responsive to the things that you want us to know. And we ask that you would guide and lead this time as we look into the scriptures that we might learn to follow you and desire even more deeply to conform our hearts to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church in the United States is in a state of crisis today, I believe. And the crisis is not simply that we live in a changing moral climate, though that does make things difficult at times. It is not merely the increasingly loud and strident voices of militant atheism that seem to be ever and ever stronger in our country. It's not the decline in church attendance, even though that is true, or the decrease in charitable giving that is true of our whole society. Really what what is the crisis of the church is the crisis of leadership. This last month brought the moral failure or at least brought to light the moral failure of another well-known evangelical pastor in Florida, and that happens with such distressing regularity that uh, people in America are wondering, you know, is there something about Christianity or about the present state of, of the Christian faith that seems to draw people who are very narcissistic and unhealthy in their personality to be in leadership? Does it attract them and give them some kind of uh, power that it shouldn't, you know, 50 years ago or more, the Gallup poll, and they've pulled this for 50 years, uh, would have said that pastors, clergy, were number one in terms of what people think of uh, the profession as the most ethical and honest. Today it's number five, and it has nurses and doctors and pharmacists heading the list. But what is more important is not just the drop in the placement, it's the trajectory and the number of people who regard what I am doing as being a uh, honest and ethical profession. It, it's gone in 1985, 30 years ago, from 67% of the population who said clergy were honest and ethical and how they deal in life, and uh, down to 46%. 21% drop uh, more than one-fifth of the population have changed their position and their understanding about it. And um, this morning I'd like to say that at least part of the problem are the people in the pews. I suppose if I were speaking to a group of pastors, it would be better for me to focus on what it is you know, we're all about that makes that seem to be more of a problem than it used to be. But this passage focuses more on the people, and, and that's what I want to think about here. There's two ways in which Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, and he's writing to a church, as I've noted before, where they they were a very upwardly mobile society. Corinth had been destroyed at one part by the early uh, Roman uh, government, and then later, under the emperors, they were reconstituted, and they began to grow, and they became an up-and-coming city. They were a famous seaport, a place where uh, it was growing very rapidly, and people could go, and they could make a lot of money. And in that kind of society, it's, it's sort of a place where entertainment tonight is the number one channel that's on television for people. They want to see what the up-and-comers are doing, and they want to be a part of that. And so what had happened among this small gathering of Christians, this new church that was only a few years old at this point, is that they had created factions in the church around who they thought were the most important leaders. In chapter 1, Paul lists three, Paul himself, Apollos, and Cephas, that is the Aramaic name of Peter, the apostle, that apparently they they were attracted to various kinds of teachers, and he was their man, and they were completely given to what that person was about. And this is the point in in the book where he actually gets right down to what the problem is And he uses two illustrations I want to think about. In the first one, he he gives um, a perspective on preachers. Like the first verses, 5 through 9, are about how you should think about those who lead in the church. And then he goes into a part in 10 through 15 where he he thinks about uh, how should church members themselves participate in a church. And I want to think about those two things, some perspective on preachers and some perspectives on yourselves as church members. Now, on a very practical level, our church uh, is facing a huge task in the next 10 years that we haven't faced before, and that is that the need is going to come to replace me, and I happen to be a person who started the church 31 years ago, started as a small group meeting in my home, and I'm one of those founding pastors who uh, wanted to plant churches, and I ended up staying in the first church that I planted. Our church has planted two other c- churches in the communities around us, which I'm uh, happy about, and it's good to see other churches thriving and growing. I had hoped to do more, but that's part of, I guess, my own disappointment to face in life. As uh, Wesley said in that famous movie, The Princess Bride, be prepared for disappointment. But the fact is, when someone stays in church for so long, the founding pastor, there are certain liabilities that go along with it, too. And one of the liabilities in this case is that this church has never had the need to find a pastor. And, and so you're going to go through that in the next few years. I don't know when it will be, but at some point I will step down from being the lead pastor and ask that someone else be appointed to do that. And I want to kind of think about these things in light of that fact. This, this has real relevance to you because You've only experienced one person leading the church in the whole of the life of this church, and that's going to change as time goes on. A couple of presuppositions, I just want to state these quickly, but they like form the foundation of everything I'm going to say, and so they need to be stated. One is that I believe pastors are just members of a local church, ultimately. We are fellow members of the church. I remember talking to a pastor once in a denomination where they have bishops and the bishop moves the pastors around periodically and he told me we we in our denomination are not, I'm not a member of the church of which I am serving. And I remember thinking that is like totally foreign to my whole conception of church. How could you not be a member of the church that you are simply a part of the fellowship? In the Bible it views human leaders like older brothers and sisters in the family and we have a responsibility given to us by God but ultimately we're just family members, and that's important to understand. And the other thing is, I don't think there's something about being a pastor that gives me the power to do things that others couldn't do. In in other words, really, the ultimate goal of a pastor is simply to do and to be what every Christian should do and be. That's kind of foundational to the way I think, and most of you would know that, at least on some level. But in light of that, I want to give some perspective on preachers and then perspective on church members and how we relate to one another. The first thing Paul does is he uses two illustrations in Rapid Fire, and they're both meant to give you an image of how you should think about leaders in the church. He starts by using an image of cultivating a field. And he says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Now, he's describing... Um, something that would be well-known to people and easily understood by us today, and that is he is comparing the church, obviously, to a field that is being brought under cultivation in order to produce uh, fruit. This is a common illustration used throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So he says, what is Paul? What is Apollos, another famous leader uh, in the early church? We are just servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, in that illustration, even before you go on any further, something is made very clear. He is assigning to him and Apollos, with this illustration, the most menial task that is involved in uh, cultivating a field. He doesn't say, I plowed. Plowing, I, I would imagine, I can only imagine this, it, plowing behind, you know, being pulled by a horse, the plow, would take a little skill. I don't think you just uh, get out there and do it. It would take some time, and he doesn't say, I I plowed. He says, I planted. Planters don't do anything but, like, poke their finger in the ground and drop a seed in there. Or, in some cases, they might open up a little bigger hole and and put four or five seeds in there. And the water requires even less skill than the planter, because all he does is need to note where the seed was planted and pour water on it. So he takes like these two farmhands, the water boy and the planter, and he says, that's what uh, Apollos and I are like. We are servants. God used us to lead you to faith in Christ. But the fact is, God is the one who causes the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, there is no significance in this first illustration given to the servants. They're interchangeable. You could get someone else to do the same job. It just takes being shown how to do it, and then you're set in motion behind the plow and planting and watering so that a crop will grow. God is the one who ultimately does the work. And that's made very clear here. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one. Now, in part, that means they're interchangeable. It doesn't matter which one is the planter and which one is the waterer in this case, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. Now, that word, God's fellow workers, that phrase could mean we are fellow workers with God, like he invites us to participate with him, and I happen to think that's true. I don't think that's what this passage means. When it says we are God's fellow workers, it means Apollos and I are working together for God, not with God. The emphasis is on this, obviously, in the passage. We are united in what we're doing, and there should be no competition or anything between us because all we are doing is the task assigned by God to carry out in order for God himself to be at work and bring the growth. What we do makes no difference unless God is involved in it. Now, he's using a physical illustration that obviously is meant to be applied to a spiritual situation that is a church. It's not talking about the physical structure of the church, though that might become important only in a place for the people to be. He's talking about the lives of the people in the church. That he and Apollos ministered in the various ways that God gifted them and enabled them to do it. And they were interchangeable. First thing you should think about pastors, we are just other church members. We are doing something God has called us to do, but you should treat us as equals with yourself before God. I mean, that's ultimately what is true of us. We're interchangeable, and this is hard. It's harder for Protestants to understand this. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but Catholic priests are interchangeable. They all wear the same clothes, and, and you know you can't tell them apart. And, and people who have gone to Catholic Church for a long time have been trained that That's a nature of what the church's about. It's why Catholic churches don't get big or small based on who the priest is in charge, at least not at all like Protestant churches, because they're interchangeable. It doesn't matter. I'm not defending that whole system. I'm just saying that is the way that works. In churches that aren't like that, like our church, there tends to be much more of a a weight given to who the person is up front. And Paul, in part, is saying, you've got you to gotta get over that. You know, I, I, we had a couple here for a number of years, a, such a great couple, but they left. And, and I remember they left and didn't see them for a few weeks and finally contacted them. And what had happened was this. You, may, you wouldn't know this, but I, for many years, preached 70% of the Sundays here. And then I dropped it to 60% for a number of years. And then, uh, starting about four years ago, Paul and I began to, to preach. Each of us preached 50% of the Sundays So basically every other Sunday. They left because they wanted Tom to be up there every week. And I was really sorry they left. I like this couple. I still see them every once in a while. They don't go to church anywhere. The problem is I seem to be gifted to either help people like that adopt a more mature attitude or leave. (laughs) Because that's just not the way the church functions. And I'm not even going to try to be the person who helps it to function that way. That's what he says here. Neither he or plants nor he or waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Ultimately, God is the one the church is about, and people have to learn as time goes on that that's why you're here. It's your soul and God. And you. when you begin to move towards that, you can worship in any setting, regardless of the music, it's good or bad, regardless of the preaching. As long as it's the truth that it's founded upon, you can worship and bring your heart to God, regardless of who's up front. That's the first illustration. Then he moves immediately into a second one. And there's a transition in verse 6. We, he says, are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And he puts two things out there, field and building. Seems like odd that he's going to move immediately now into a different image. The image of a church is a building. But it's common in the Bible. Jeremiah does it seven times. God speaks to him and, and says to Jeremiah, if I call you to plant or to build, Or, if I call you, to pluck up or to tear down, the opposite of planning and building. He uses that many times. So there's something about these two images that seem to represent best certain aspects of what the church is all about. And now what Paul says in verse 10 is this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon. Now he uses an illustration of the church as a building and himself as a master builder or a construction manager. He's like the general manager of a large construction project, and he is responsible, first of all, to make sure that the foundation is laid accurately and adequately, and then he's responsible in his work, apparently, to coordinate everything else that is done. Others are going to build upon it. Now, that's going to go beyond his lifetime. He's not concerned about the fact that he is not building the whole structure because the Christian movement will go on for a long time. He's one person, but he's important because he laid the foundation. Now he pictures the pastoral role, you might say, the ministry that he is involved in, in planting churches and helping them to become established. He sees it as a role of great responsibility and a role that requires skill. You can't just get anyone to be a construction manager in the way that you can find, you know, a young person to plant or water. Accountability becomes important here. Responsibility becomes important. And if the first illustration is meant to say treat them as equals before God, the second illustration is meant to say give them the respect that their role deserves that God has called them to. Participate in what it is they are seeking to do in establishing the foundation. Obviously, again, we're using a physical illustration to parallel a spiritual truth. He's not talking about a physical building here. He's talking about the lives of Christian people as they are brought together into a healthy, accountable fellowship and they begin to build one another up. The foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the person responsible should be responsible primarily to make sure that foundation is always Uh, attended to, that it is always made clear what the church exists for. We don't exist for ourselves, we exist for Jesus Christ. We don't exist to glorify ourselves in any way but to glorify Jesus Christ. So if the first message is you need to let pastors be one of you, in a sense. You, You should not put us on a pedestal that's one thing you need to realize. Let Let me say, you need to distinguish between a person being a normal sinner and a person being a moral failure. Moral failure is not accepted in Christian leadership. I personally believe that when someone fails morally by breaking his marriage vows, who's in a position that I am in, a teaching elder in a local church, he should never be allowed to be in that position again. I can't prove that from Scripture. The reason I believe that is that we live in a culture that needs that. They need the churches to say, we still love these people, they can be restored, they can have a service among the people of God and do many things, but we will not put them up in front of a congregation on a regular basis when they have done that. I hope you never have to deal with that as a church, but I'm giving you my perspective there. That's different from a person being a normal sinner. Sometimes people expect pastors to be perfect, and it just isn't going to happen. Now, let me give a very simple illustration. My, my wife went to a garage sale or something, and she found this plaque that she thought was just hilarious, and it, it identified me, okay? And it says, I am silently correcting your grammar. <laughs> <laughs> she thought that was just, you have to put that at, your, you know, at the church. Oh, this is so funny, all right? Went to the church, and I hid it on my bookshelf, like between some books so no one would see it, and first person who walked in for staff meeting that week said, "Oh, look at that! Yeah, that is so funny. They got it down. Put it on my desk, and they all laughed about how this is Tom." You know. <laughs> now I came by it honestly. I thought it was, you know, older before I realized that not everybody grows up in a home in which your father has the Oxford English Dictionary on a podium in the dining room. <laughs> but that's what I grew up in. And after a couple of martinis, he liked to argue about the meaning of words, and and then. He, one of us would have to get up and look up the word in the Oxford English Dictionary so that we could prove that either we were right or dad was right or whatever. I just thought that was normal, like everybody does that. So when I got married, I began to live that out, and I soon found that my wife thought it was rather annoying to be you know, corrected all the time, and it took me just a little bit longer to realize that's probably not the best way to live. But obviously, I have a quirk, because everybody on staff knew that That's Tom, who's silently correcting your grammar. I try not to do it, and I actually had a bitter experience a few weeks ago. My daughter, we were on vacation. I have a 35-year-old daughter who corrected my grammar. (laughs) And I thought, my old man created monsters that are going to go on for generations. (laughs) Now, I shared that one because it's kind of a funny quirk that I have, but the fact is, if that could be seen as sinful, which it can if it's used as kind of a tool that you use to get through life, I'm a normal sinner. And the fact is I have personality quirks and things that you know aren't always enjoyable to be around. You need to allow people to have that, and I think most people do, and, and for the most part, I couldn't have been here this long <laughs> if you didn't, but you need to distinguish between that and moral failure. Those are two completely different things. This is not acceptable. And this one is expected. Leaders are just servants. However, we are also accountable servants. So if the first one is, let them be one of you, the second part of that is, seek to give respect to those who are given the kind of responsibility that the general construction manager is given, which is the illustration that he uses. When I was in seminary, I remember a professor who said... um, you know, I used to think, and he was older at this point, and this was 35 years ago. He said, I, I used to think that if a man graduated from here and he went out, he should make it his ambition to pastor a large church. Like, that would be a, you know, successful thing to do, to be able to gather more people and so forth. He said, now I think, speaking in 1980 approximately, he said, now I think that if a man can get through life and just be a faithful husband and a faithful pastor, it doesn't matter how big his church is, he'll be a success. And what I've seen since then is that's even more true. People need to be given respect because they are the kind of people I'm describing, not because they build big churches, because we have too many people building big churches who fall, and when they fall, it's a big fall. Last year, for the first time in my experience, a church closed its doors, and I can't believe this church ended. It was perhaps the biggest, if not the biggest, one of the biggest churches in the United States, had 15 satellite campuses at which a video feed showed this very famous pastor preaching to all of these people. And he didn't experience a moral failure. He experienced a failure of leadership and some ethical problems with money, apparently. And he resigned under great duress. And the elders announced three weeks later that they were closing their doors. The Mother Church had 10,000 people. It was built on one person. And when he was gone... They closed their doors, and they said to all these satellite campuses that were completely dependent on this one great preacher, oh, you can be churches if you want, but we, we don't have any money to help you or any, any way to help you. Astounding. But that's the American church. That's like the picture of the American church, building on personalities and having favorites. And then when, ex- when failure happens, it's failure that is put in the front of the New York Times. Let me give a little perspective on church members then. What happens is he turns his attention from leaders and how you ought to think about leaders to members. And he does it because all of a sudden he becomes very general in what he's saying. He's no longer referring to himself or Apollos. He says, uh, someone else, verse 10. Each one. No one, verse 11. If anyone, verse 12. He's using these general terms and he's talking about now what is the responsibility of all the people who are a part of a church when it comes to their relationship with church leaders. Well, obviously, they are a part of building on the foundation because the church is not built by an individual. The foundation is laid, which is Jesus Christ, by an individual. But the church is built up as the whole body participates together. And so he says, verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now that becomes the basic command of the passage. Let each one take care how he builds on it. Be careful how you participate in the life of the church is what he's saying to all the believers. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the responsibility of church leaders to keep the foundation the foundation, to maintain the emphasis on God and his grace and the cross. But then the superstructure of the building is built as Christians participate together in that in all the different ways in which they do. And each member participates and contributes in varied ways. It's the responsibility of leaders to help those who are part of the church family to participate, like a construction manager, helps people to participate in meaningful ways to contribute to the building of the church, not as a building, but the building of the church as a healthy fellowship of people who will point others to Jesus Christ. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. Now he uses this illustration. If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, there's going to be a day of accountability. Now, let's just think about the materials. He says, first of all, when you participate in the life of a church, you can use worthy or unworthy materials. And again, he's paralleling a physical illustration of building a building to a spiritual illustration of the life of a church. And he's picturing it here. You can build using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now, it's evident that there's a decreasing The the elements decrease in value and permanence. So, for example, if you take gold or silver, gold is the most valuable, the most precious, and uh, silver is less than gold, but it also is valuable. If you put them to fire, like you make them melt, what happens? they retain their value, right? I mean, it doesn't change them. You don't burn up any of the gold. It's still there. What else happens, you know, when you melt? It purifies it. I mean, what happens is apparently all of the impurities, the non-gold things that are mixed in with it, they rise to the surface and you can scrape them off. And what is left is even more pure gold than you had before. So gold increases its value when it's burned. Silver does the same. Precious stones don't increase their value. There's no impurities that are burned off, but precious stones, and he's talking about jewels, they don't lose their value. They retain everything that they are when they go through the fire. And then he says wood, hay, straw, and he mentions three things that are not very permanent, that don't have much strength, and that burn with increasing rapidity. They also have decreasing value. You do use wood to build a home, You use hay to feed animals. It's very valuable because it's simply the grass of the field, but grass that can be eaten by animals and digested, so it's valuable. Straw is also grass of the field, but grasses that have no value to them, and the only thing they're good for is to put down to soak up manure. They are valuable in that sense. I mean, they're useful for that purpose, but they're kind of like sawdust. Their value is cleaning up. It's not in building. So he lists these six things, and obviously the idea is You can use things of great value that become even greater when they're purified by trial, or you can use things of less value all the way down to things that have no value at all. And obviously, he's not talking about gold, silver, precious stones. He's talking about something that we bring when we participate. So it would include our assets, that is, the things that we have that we contribute to God's work. It would also include our motives— The reasons why we do things. It would include the sacrifice of our time and the reason why we do that. I mean, all these things are involved in what God is going to evaluate. That's the second point. In his illustration, the first idea is that we can use worthy or unworthy materials and that God will then evaluate the quality of what we have accomplished through all the things we have brought to him, whether it is physical assets or whether it is time, or whether it is simply the motives that we brought. And if we were moved by a love for God and a desire to honor Him, we will find that those things equate to gold and silver. If we came with a feeling that we have to answer to our parents this afternoon when they call us, it's like bringing wood, hay, and straw. If we're doing it to be seen by others, it obviously is not of much value. If we're doing it For the glory of God, which only we can know and only in our hearts, then it has value. Each member contributes in various ways. God himself will evaluate the quality of the work. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire very important illustration. He pictures a man building a house, so to speak, and as he's building his house, he uses all kinds of material, and the house catches on fire. If he has not used the kinds of materials that will last the test of time, the man is pictured in this image as escaping out of his house with not even his clothes on and smelling like fire, but he has his life. Nothing is left. He says clearly, he himself will be saved. And this underlines the gospel of the grace of God, that while we are accepted by God, by grace, through faith in Christ, that means our destiny is secure in Christ. It is not dependent on whether or not we have done what we ought to in this life. Now, I don't want you to think this means that a person can come to faith in Christ and never have any other sign of of that that's not at all what it's about this is speaking to people who have known the forgiveness of sins and they are a part of the church family and fellowship and they are seeking to do things but he's telling them maybe their motives are not the best maybe the factions in the church that he's experiencing are part of the problem of the way in which they're thinking about the role of leaders and the way in which they're thinking about their own role and he's assuring them on one level your salvation is secure in christ but he does say it will be as through fire, only as through fire, like a person escaping with nothing to show for his entire life of eternal value. The church is not built up by such a person. He finds out that whatever his participation was, it's gone. That's a perspective on church members. Be careful how you participate. It is your responsibility to assist and cooperate with those who are given responsibility to guide and lead in the general overall construction of the church, according to the illustration. Paul and others like him, including elders in churches, are like skilled master builders. And then the members are all the people who participate with them in carrying out the functions that help the superstructure of the church to be built, which may go on over generations. And the last thing he notes is also important. It's that the quality of the foundation is what matters. He turns back, I believe, in the last two verses to teachers again. And now he says something very harsh. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Think about that. He's writing in Corinth. I've been to Corinth twice. The ruins of Corinth involve three temples that are just in ruins, but you, you would realize by looking at them, they must have been magnificent structures in their day. And they, these people grew up in a city where they had temples that people could see, and, and, and they, they treated them like the centerpiece of their city. And all these people were, as far as we know, is maybe 50 people in the city of Corinth meeting in house churches because they didn't have a meeting place large enough to hold all of them, at least on a regular basis. And he's saying to them, you are the temple of God. That's what he says to every blood-bought Christian today. Not only we individually, that is true as well, but we, as we meet together in the local church, are the temple of God. And it doesn't matter how marginalized we are in the society in which we live. It doesn't matter whether the building we meet in is is beautiful and ornate and sizable, or whether it's small and substandard. It doesn't matter. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And and then he goes on, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And he's turning back to the foundation builders of the church, layers of the church. And he's saying that there will be, uh, Jesus promised this, Paul himself taught it, there will arise in future generations problems from within the church, but it will come from among yourselves, from among the leaders, and they will seek to lay a foundation that is not Jesus Christ. And there's nothing but judgment for people like that. That's not simply using substandard materials to build on the proper foundation. Such a person will be saved, yet so as through fire. That is seeking to maintain or to lay a foundation that is not the gospel. So that is spoken to people like me. But what I want you to note is this. He essentially says two things. You need to have a perspective on preachers, and you need to have a perspective on on yourselves and your responsibility. It's basically, the idea behind it all is that the church is like a building. In fact, when he specifies the building, he says it's like a temple. That's why there's gold, silver, and precious stones. It's not just a house you're building here. That, that when it comes to that, the quality of the foundation is what matters. The focus on Jesus Christ, the gospel message, is what matters in a church. That has to be kept first and foremost in people's thinking. And the quality, he says, of our labor, the way in which we serve and our participation in building up the church should match the character of the foundation that we're building on. If the foundation is Jesus Christ and we recognize that and we appreciate it and we learn to appreciate it more and more as we worship together, as that happens you will want to build with the most quality materials your life can afford for God. And it doesn't matter whether it's a small amount of money when it's given out of a heart of love for God and sacrifice. That's what matters. That's what God sees. I hope that as we move forward we'll be able to move forward with those things in mind. I enjoy so much being here and So happy to be a part of this church family. It's shaped my life more than anything else in my whole life. But the fact is, ultimately, I'm just a member of the church, and someday I'll be gone. I mean, eventually I'll die, but even before then, I'll not be the lead pastor of this church anymore. And some of you will say, finally. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope what most of you say is, he was a good man. Loved God, pointed us to him, but he was just me. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the one who is building your church and you allow in some stupendous way we don't understand human instruments as the body of Christ to carry on the work that Jesus began, foundation that the apostles laid and that foundation that church members participate in every place, There is a true church meeting in every part of the world. We pray that you would help us to see that and to live in light of that, to see our responsibility in light of God's truth. We pray this in Jesus' name.